This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, we would have our hearts fully dedicated to you. I pray that you would stir us up by the power of your Holy Spirit today, that we might put you first and foremost above all other loyalties, because love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen. You may be seated. So you all know that I grew up in the 90s, and that I think some of the films of the late 90s represent the best that Hollywood has ever done. So, I am making bold to begin this sermon by referencing one of the truly great films of the late 90s, Office Space. Just a quick show of hands. Who's seen this film? Oh, y'all are with me. That's right. I think this is uh, Mike Judge's masterpiece of social commentary in which he skewers the corporate culture of the late 90s. The protagonist of this film, Peter, is a computer programmer employed by a company called Anytech, a software company whose products are never actually made clear in the movie. But Peter seems to spend most of his time filling out something called TPS reports. The culture of this company is somnolescent, and Peter and his coworkers are bored, they're uninspired, they're washed out, and they live in constant fear of being downsized by corporate consultants. And along the way, Peter meets a woman named Joanna, who's played by Jennifer Aniston, She works at an Applebee's-style restaurant called Tchotchkes, where she has to wear a certain number of buttons of her own choosing, of course, which the restaurant refers to as flair. And in a moment of genius, Mike Judge inserts himself into the film as Joanna's boss, Stan, and he hounds her constantly about her lack of enthusiasm for the required flair. Stan pointedly tells her that Tchotchkes encourages self-expression, at least in the narrow form represented by flair, and that 15 pieces of flair is the bare minimum for self-expression. So Joanna shows up one day with just the required 15 pieces of flair, and Stan admonishes her again. 15 is the minimum, okay? Now, you know, it's up to you whether or not you want to do just the bare minimum, but what do you think about people who do the bare minimum, hmm? Now take Brian, for example, Joanna's coworker. Brian has 37 pieces of flair, okay, and a terrific smile. So we all kind of like laugh and cringe at this scene because Judge has really skewered the soullessness of these environments that give the illusion of encouraging individuality but really demand total conformity. And at the same time that we laugh with Judge about how phony it is to artificially impose a requirement upon employees to express themselves through flair, there is at the same time a deeper insight about personal identity in the late modern age that comes when we think a bit deeper about this scene in the movie. Identity is imparted through formation and participation in communal structures that give us a sense of what our lives are supposed to be about, about what is true and good and beautiful, what it is noble to think about and meditate upon and give oneself to. And those bonds have all been liquefied in late modernity, with the result that late modern people are actually in the position of forging and constructing an identity for themselves through identifying with a series of causes and characteristics. Identity in this culture, no matter how highly prized it is, does actually become akin to something like flair. We identify with something, a cause or an attribute about ourselves, because we believe it will give us a sense of purpose and help us to know what we should feel and think and how we should ask, how we should act. And then we express that identity publicly and we seek validation and affirmation of that identity from others. And there is surely no more common sentiment expressed on Twitter and Instagram than I identify as. 
Identity is now an all-consuming obsession, and at the same time, and probably for related reasons, it is more vulnerable and fragile and shallowly rooted than ever. Now, the person who has penetrated most deeply into this expressivist culture of the late modern West is probably the late Marxist social theorist Zygmunt Bauman. He called our age the age of liquid modernity, riffing on Marx and Engels' idea in the Communist Manifesto that modernity makes everything solid melt into air. Communal bonds dissolve, institutions decay, and only the individual, understood not as citizen but as consumer, is sovereign. Bauman saw that our recent confusion and struggle with identity was simply the outworking of forces that had been unleashed much earlier in the West. So I heard a commercial the other day for Calvin Klein, which concluded, I speak my truth and my Calvins. Now let's think for just a second about how that commercial is addressing and summoning us. We are being addressed both as individuals and as consumers. This is my truth that I am voicing, not the truth in any universal sense. It's actually quite a modest claim. It is not truth for anyone else or conferred from any source outside myself, but the truth that is for me subjectively, which I expect everyone else to recognize as truth for me. And I voice this truth stylishly and with flair, robed in my Calvin Klein underwear. It's an unintentional couplet, but it works. Just go with me. So my purchases are adjuncts and enhancements of the truth which I have just now invented and articulated for myself and now hold to with great ferocity and dogmatism. Now this ad, of course, is ludicrous and it's worthy only of derisive laughter. But in its sincerity, it is a condensed symbol capturing an entire liquid modern worldview in a single phrase. What it is saying is implicitly this. I am my own creation and I am what I can purchase. And in that sense, it should also sober us. Because all of us feel, or at least should feel, the fragility and the contingency of our identities in this age. Our identities are deeply contested. It's hard to know who we are. And it should also give us enormous compassion for anyone growing up in America right now. It's a hard time to be a young person in America. And we should also take this opportunity to consider the way in which life in this culture makes us think about ourselves. We who claim to follow Jesus would never say, I am my own. But what do the meditations of our hearts and the actions of our lives reveal? Jesus gives us a stern warning in our gospel passage today in Luke 14. It's a tough, tough passage. It's one of the hard sayings of Jesus. And his warning is this. He refuses to be our flair. He will not be one more consumer choice among many. He will not be our ally in the project of our own self-creation. Rather, he will be our Lord, relativizing any other commitment that we have made. Jesus is the truth, not our truth, but the truth, because he is the Holy One of Israel come in the flesh. As the word of God, it was he who crafted the cosmos in wisdom, who inscribed intelligibility into the cosmos itself. Even while he walked and ministered on this earth, in him all things held together, and in him we lived and moved and had our being. And in him, as the Gospel of John says, was life, and that life was the light of humanity. If we follow him, Jesus tells us, it will be on his terms rather than our own. He will not be an optional add-on to the life that we have already built for ourselves. Rather, he will reorient and reframe our entire lives around himself. 
So in chapter 9 of Luke's gospel, he tells us that when Jesus' appointed hour came, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And what this means for Luke is that the moment has come for Jesus to go to the cross and to suffer and to die. Sin darkens the minds and the imaginations and the desires of all human beings. And we Christians believe that no one naturally perceives reality in its moral dimensions as we ought. Our perception of reality is not neutral. It is skewed and corrupted by our enslavement to sin. And therefore, the cross is the inevitable social consequence when someone lives the truth, lives truthfully in a world that prefers to live in falsehood and in darkness. Jesus knows this. And he accepts it because his mission is to seek and to save the lost. The cross is, paradoxically, Jesus' victory. To die upon the cross is the reason for which the Son of God became incarnate. And that is because the cross was inscribed already in the heart of God before Christ became incarnate. The cross that Jesus bore was the outworking in history of the suffering love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who cherished his creation and refused to allow human beings to perish forever in ignorance and evil of sin. For Jesus, the victory is willingly and righteously accepting the injustice of that cross. Because in his death, he struggles with and overcomes death, a victory which he certifies to us, he proves to us in his resurrection. Death once reigned universally supreme, St. Paul tells us in Romans 6, until Christ defeated it upon the cross. Jesus' death, therefore, is the hinge of history because it is the beginning of the ultimate defeat of death. And death may have reign over us still, but not over him because he is the first fruits of the resurrection and everyone who was united to him by the power of the Holy Spirit and through faith and baptism will also have a resurrection like his. That suffering love which defeated death reorients the entirety of reality around itself. History itself changes direction. And if that love comes to us, we will find that it completely reorients who we are as well. Mother Tish's favorite song is an old Americana song by a singer-songwriter named Julie Miller. It's called The Speed of Light. She writes in this song, Time and space are relative. That's what Einstein said back when he lived. The only thing that doesn't change makes everything else rearrange. It's the speed of light. Your love for me must be the speed of light. It's a powerful image for us to understand what Christ does when his love comes to us. Because he loved us and he made us. And because as St. Paul says in Galatians, he loved us and he gave himself for us. And therefore Christ is uninterested in being part of our project of self-creation and self-expression because he knows that we were made for nothing less than communion with him and with the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so instead when his love comes to us, it rearranges our entire life around him. When we become his followers, we must anticipate, therefore, that all of our priorities will be reordered around the suffering love of Christ. His priorities will become our priorities. His destiny will become our destiny. And we see this in our text today as Jesus speaks to the crowds. Although he speaks harshly, he does not speak unlovingly. He speaks out of great love for the crowds that they might know what the cost of discipleship is. Jesus is the light of the world, and so as he travels to Jerusalem, he inevitably finds himself in conflict with the authorities who have benefited from the darkness of sin, and so they don't like it when it's exposed. 
But he also finds himself surrounded by disciples and by multitudes who want to be his disciples. They're attracted to him. They're drawn to the brightness of the light of the divine life that emanates forth from him. And Jesus warns them sternly, as he warns us, not to think that if they follow him, that their lives will go on just as they have with a bit more meaning and inspiration. Jesus tells them that the one who follows him will do what Jesus is doing. They will repeat the pattern of his life in their lives. And so it is necessary to think clearly and soberly about what this means. To venture on following Christ is similar, he says, to a person who's going to build a watchtower. We would expect such a person to survey the scope of the project before jumping into the building because it would be the utmost foolishness to get halfway through the project and realize you didn't have enough funds to build the whole thing, to bring it to completion. Or it's like a king who's thinking about war and realizes that his military might can't contend with the, the forces that are arrayed against him. And so it behooves this king to think through his actual situation and then to shrewdly sue for peace. The person who does not think about what, is, what following Jesus entails is in the same grave danger as the person who has thoughtlessly gone into the building project or the king who has not thought about the military might that is arrayed against him. They have naively assumed that in following the blueprint of Christ's life, it will have a different result in their own life. To follow Jesus is to be united with him in his mission. And therefore, as soon as we are united with him by his spirit, we will be put in situations, we can count on it, where our loyalty to him is challenged. We will experience promptings to act sacrificially. We will experience pangs of conscience that reveal to us how difficult it really is to commit ourselves to the way of Jesus. We cannot know in advance in what ways we will be tested. To be elect in Christ is to be elect to be co-sufferers with him for the sake of bringing the nations to see the beauty and the truth and the goodness of God. So therefore, maturation in the faith is the increasing ability to view all of our circumstances as opportunities to magnify Christ and his glory. T.S. Eliot once wrote in Little Getting that this maturity is a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. By comparison with representing Christ in the world, Jesus says, every other loyalty must be hated. The Greek word here I want to stress does not mean hate in an absolute sense, but in a relative one. It does not mean that we must despise our father and mother and sister and brother or our very own lives, but that these loyalties cannot be privileged above our loyalty to Christ. And he is warning us, too, that by his plan and ordination, we will be brought to the place where we must choose between him or one of these lesser loves. What Christ is saying in this passage was an absolutely unreasonable request in the ancient world. To be forced to choose between Christ and one's own family so as to be disowned by them. It's a hard word. Jesus knows exactly what he's saying. This still has some force for some of us. Some of us feel the bonds of kinship very tightly and profoundly. And there's a fear of disappointing those relations. And Jesus is saying, this word is for you. Because the whole identity of the disciple was to be reordered around the master who was God in human flesh. But for, other, for others of us, the bonds of kinship don't, don't tie quite as, 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 as tightly as they used to. So what loyalty is it that Jesus is naming for us? Is it control over our sexuality? Is it giving up the stranglehold that we have over our money? 
Is it reckoning with our prioritization of our career above everything else? Is it defending our reputation and respectability before Christianity's cultured despisers? Is it maintaining a commitment to blinding hipness in our culture which privileges celebrity above everything else? Is it being the knowledgeable one and having think pieces and data to back up every argument? What is our first loyalty? What we say is our first loyalty will surely be tested over time. The reason that the New Testament speaks so often of maturity in the Christian life is that this is not a realization that comes all at once. It comes rather through a series of painful collisions with our sin and our idolatry. It forces us to reckon with the fact that our first loyalty is actually not Christ, but something else. Jesus is still flair for us. It's suffering that clarifies the degree to which our hearts have become centered upon something else other than him. And so suffering is the tool of our purification. And we don't get to specify in advance how the Lord will ask us to suffer or to put a limit on the extremity of that suffering. But this much can be stated categorically. When Jesus calls someone, as Bonhoeffer famously said, he calls that person to come and die. And at a minimum, this means, as Stanley Hauerwas has said, that no one gets to get out of life alive. Now, the transhumanists are working on this, but Hauerwas so far is batting a thousand percent with this aphorism. But Jesus is going further than this. He's telling us that if we follow him, he will quite intentionally see to it that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are put in trying circumstances which will force us to clarify for ourselves and for the world just where our loyalties lie. Becoming mature as a Christian means an increasing conviction that the only thing in this life that is worthy of our complete devotion and dedication is Christ himself. We've learned from St. Paul and from the great saints of the church that this looks like an increasing indifference to our external circumstances. Coming to see every suffering as an opportunity to make Jesus look beautiful and attractive. Whatever affliction we bear, St. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, is light and momentary affliction which is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The things that are seen, he says, whether positive or negative, are transient. The The grass withers and the flower fades. As the old Stoics used to say, sic transit gloria mundi, thus passes the glory of this world. But the things that are as yet unseen, the creation resurrected and glorified, St. Paul says, that's eternal. Put all your eggs in that basket. The purpose of this life then, St. Paul says, is to imitate the pattern of Christ's life, to welcome trials, as St. James puts it, rather than seeking to avoid them, to, and not to inoculate ourselves from all suffering or to minimize sacrifice at all costs. Every other loyalty must be relativized for the sake of participating in the mission of the one around whom the whole universe revolves. My friend Herb Bailey, who runs Uncommon Grounds Cafe in Aliquippa, wears a bracelet that says, I get to. When he explains this, he says that it is a privilege to see Christ and to magnify Christ in every situation in his life, whether that circumstance is pleasurable or painful. That is what Christian maturity looks like. The willingness to say that I get to represent Christ in all things. And especially as by the power of the Holy Spirit, I give glory to him in the midst of suffering. Okay. So now we've heard the hard word of Jesus this morning. And I hope if you've taken me seriously, 
you're sitting there thinking, how is it possible to live this way? He will not be our flair. He is the center of the universe. Metaphorically speaking, the speed of light which does not change, but which changes everything. How is it possible to live this way? This is a completely unreasonable demand that you're placing upon me, Jesus. Well, I hope it will encourage you to know that the disciples felt the exact same way when they listened to Jesus speak. If this is what is required, they want to know, then who can be saved? What is impossible with human beings, Jesus goes on to say in Luke chapter 18, is possible with God. We who want to follow Jesus have to remember not only the demands that Jesus lays upon us as his disciples, but also the grace that he promises us through his Holy Spirit. It is grace both to live in the way of Jesus and to repent when we fail to do so. Martin Luther said very worthily that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It is God who has begun the good work of grace in us, and it is he who will carry it to completion. If we are transformed, it is not through our own efforts, but through God's determined will to reconcile us and all of his creation to himself. I don't know if you listened to the choir sing that introit this morning, but I was shivering listening to it. second verse says this, Take up your cross, let not its weight fill your weak spirit with alarm. His strength shall bear you, your spirit up and race your heart and nerve your arm. My friends, that is good news. This is not about us. This is about the power of the Holy Spirit bringing Jesus Christ to bear in our lives. We are not able to follow Jesus on our own, but when we come to this Eucharist each week, we are proclaiming that his strength is our sustenance. We are claiming that through this Holy Eucharist, Jesus is bringing us into reconciliation with the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we commune with him in the meal that he gave us, let us give thanks for the supreme greatness, both of our calling and for the mercy that we have in Christ to accomplish it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.